when I hit a mogul, I can't seize up and worry about falling. I have to soften and find my footing again. So if it's how you relate to guilt or how you relate to dropped balls or things that yet you miss because no human can do everything, if we're soft with that, it protects your energy for the highest use of it. And I really do believe the world needs us now more than ever. So could we stop burning our own energy? Welcome to Messy and Magnificent, the place driven women come to elevate their career, health, and relationships. In here, we increase your productivity by replacing always being busy with the space to breathe. Hear your own wisdom and be part of a sisterhood that has your back. My name is Carly Bain, and together we're going to make sure that you have a doable plan and the roots to rise. Well, welcome back to Messy and Magnificent, or if it's your first time here, welcome. It is your gal, Carly. So I'm not going to beat around the bush. I got a question for you right out of the gate today. When was the last time you felt guilty about something? (laughs) I ask this question because this month, as we focus on our entire series to fill your professional cup with the resources to bolster your best work and living, I knew that we needed to talk about guilt. So maybe you've caught the other episodes this month, number 69, where we talked about being out of sync and how wise women are receiving nourishment in order to show up for their careers and things that they care about. Or maybe you heard episode 70, which was if you're thinking about change and how we find our focus and make really elevated choices. And there was a beautiful guide sheet that went along with those episodes. I will make sure that there's a link to both of them in the show notes. But here's the thing. Almost every high performing client I have, each woman who is under significant pressure on a regular basis because she's living into goals in her career or her health or her relationships or all three for that matter. Well, she brushes up against some major guilt. Now, sometimes this looks like little things, like just wanting to spend an extra hour on an important work project, but feeling guilty that you're not going to be able to make yourself or maybe somebody else a home-cooked meal if you do that. Or sometimes another small but consistent way this shows up for a lot of driven women is when you do get the rare moment to sit still for a moment, you feel guilty for doing that because your mind is telling you all the things you should be doing. I should be cleaning up this room, or I should be throwing in a load of laundry, or I should be calling back so-and-so, or I should be working on that PowerPoint presentation, whatever it is. Now, those are the smaller examples, but sometimes it's bigger, meaning wanting to invest in yourself. Maybe you want to go back to school for something or invest in a training program or a course or an assistant in some way, whether that's a housekeeper or somebody to help you in your professional office. And you're wondering if it's a good enough use of your money when you could probably just get by and learn it on your own. If you could only just focus better and then you'd have the time to get to that kind of stuff, right? So if we don't address our guilt at its very best, unprocessed guilt just drains our daily mojo because we're trying to go about our day, but our mind is somewhere else focused on feeling guilty, telling us that we should be doing other things. And thus we've got a split focus in our brain. And so no one thing is getting our full attention because when we're at work, we're thinking about our personal lives and all the things we should be tending to there. And when we are inhabiting our personal lives, maybe you're with friends or with family or on the phone with somebody you care about, you're thinking about work. But worse than that, 
guilt will actually prevent us from moving in the world towards our goals or the meaningful connections that give us in our careers life and zest and success. So I reached out to my buddy, somebody I really admire, Catherine Flavin. Now, Catherine came to me, or I should say I came to Catherine after years of a mutual friend telling me how much I would adore both her and her work. So Catherine is the founder and CEO of Leader Mom and Whole Leader. And as a social scientist by training, she brings research-based practices for sustainable and inclusive success for high-performing leaders under pressure. Now, she's had over 25 years of experience in this type of engagement with culture and with leadership. She's served clients in financial services that you would know of, like American Express and Citibank. She's worked with Pfizer, ESPN, and a number of healthcare organizations, as well as national political campaigns and nonprofit foundations. But here's an extra skill set of Catherine's that makes this conversation with her today so particularly timely. Catherine has developed training to support quick promotions for first responders in New York City following 9-11. And she's led analysis and presentations on cultures for big organizations such as Goldman Sachs during the financial crisis. So she really knows how to support leaders during tough times. And in a moment, you're going to hear her come in hot with a brilliant perspective on the mindset we need to consider if we want to see women who are losing significant professional ground during C-19, regain their place in the workplace and continue to thrive. Now, here are just a few of the highlights you're about to hear Catherine speak to. Number one, the assumptions that women brush up against when we decide to focus on what it is that we care about. Then she outlines classic leader behaviors that she's found in her research that are what get women to significant leadership roles. She also explains how men are evaluated on both their performance and their potential in the workplace and what it is that women are evaluated on and why this is. And then, of course, you're going to hear her explain how we can learn how to integrate and infuse guilt in such a way in our days that it really helps us. You see, because guilt is an emotion, Catherine is able to explain that her data has made it clear that emotional intelligence accounts for about 24 to 66% of performance in the workplace, which means this is far too much to be ignored. And so what she's able to do here is teach this type of emotional intelligence, specifically today as it relates to guilt, to really smart people so that you're able to discriminate when guilt shows up if it's good data or bad data, and how to leverage our emotional capacity to enrich us, and specifically to use guilt as a super useful tool that tells us when we have violated one of our values and what to do about that. So in other words, expect in today's interview to hear how we can engage with our guilt to make us better leaders with a clear sense of agency in our days. Now, this is the part of the show where I get to pause and give a shout out to a listener. And today we're giving a really special shout out to a listener who also is on our team, to our dear Ellen Casey Boyd. Now, if you know me personally, there's a good chance you know Ellen or you've at least heard me say a million wonderful things about her. I have been fortunate enough to have Ellen in my life for, gosh, Al, what's it been? Must be about 15 years now. And she came to work at Everybody Thrive, our company, a couple years ago and has made it possible to bring amazing guests just like Catherine to our show. 
Ellen is our head of sisterhood systems and scheduling, and it is her dedicated work behind the scenes that has made the growth of this company entirely possible. Ellen, we appreciate you so much. So if you're listening in, anybody out there, and you want to have a shout out on an upcoming episode, head on over to iTunes and leave a review. I would love to share your words with our audience and tell you how much I appreciate you being in our community too. All right, my conversation with Katherine Flavin. At this moment in history, right, post-COVID, that's the sound of my dog scratching on the door because I've been in this office for months with all that women have gone on. It is that we have to choose to bend history. Now we have to, we made so many gains prior to COVID. First time women were majority in the workforce in my own experience have seen more organizations focused on women in leadership at senior levels in really serious ways than ever before. And now we're at risk of, of watching these massive losses and these, this incredible strains, right, where everyone's like, wow, women are having such a hard time. And then they kind of shrug their shoulders like, yeah, you could have seen this coming. And it's like, no, no, not that, not that, not complacency, not acceptance that this was inevitable, but like do something. There are things that people can do to whether you're an individual or an organization to begin to address these motherhood related bias and penalties, unleash some of this talent in ways that the world desperately needs. Gosh, that resonates with me so deeply. Your call to say, let's not treat this as if it was inevitable, but let's address this. That is such a, like switching from a passive, we're all kind of in the backseat of the car along for the ride to, I'm going to be in the driver's seat and take this in the direction we want to see it going. So I'm, I'm so curious for anybody listening, tell us a little bit more about leader moms. And I'm curious too, Catherine, because we haven't talked about this before you started with a career in politics. So I'm curious about, A, I want to hear about what Leader Moms is for somebody who's new, but also how did you get there? Like your path from, you know, graduating school, entering politics to creating Leader Moms, what brought you there? Oh, I, I so love you for asking this because when, when one looks at one's career while it's happening, one wonders, is there a direction here? Yes. <laughs> like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why this? Why now? Um, Leader mom on a personal level is my fourth child, Mm -hmm. right? It is also, I'm a data person, right? Like I I like patterning and looking across fields. And so um, my original training as a social scientist was public opinion polling and who's following you as a leader. So like back in the day of Colin Powell, I was working at the Roper Center, Newt Gingrich, the Clintons, whoever it was, nonpartisan aggregating data across Gallup, ABC News, um, Washington Post, very, very cool stuff at the Roper Center for Public Opinion Research and learning how do you get the book on somebody that the kind of approach that somebody like Nate Silver takes now, Mm -hmm. not relying on any one data point, but really looking across. So that basic training is in my head and the idea of power and politics and equity. And because I'm also one of the females on the team, I get a lot of the girl stuff. Right. So like when we're when we're coding data and I'm looking at Gallup's first question on women in the presidency was from like 1936. And it's something like, would you vote for a woman for president if she were qualified in every other respect? And that implicit bias, right? Yeah. Is so deeply ingrained. I also was a political theory student, so so I just love philosophy and sort of what's the point of it all from a meaning of life thing. 
So Aristotle, I'm reading Aristotle and Aristotle saying to be female is to essentially be deficient. And also Aristotle is saying, here's how you learn to be a virtuous man, human. And we use a lot of that in our work, that basic philosophy of find somebody who's virtuous and model them. Right. But so, so this, this sort of equity thing, research equity, meaning has been core to my career of like, why are we doing what we're doing? And the science and then the humanity of it really go together for me. And so partly I shifted careers because my advisor died. He, he died and his name was Everett Ladney. He was an amazing academic, but I decided I didn't want to do academics. So I went all the way through PhD, all but dissertation. And my poor 87 year old mother is still waiting for me to defend my dissertation. <laughs> but, and then it went to work for a foundation that did, and in a research role, and, and that was around diversity and inclusion. It's called Everyday Democracy. But we were doing early work on race and equity and how do you have conversations and move communities to action and how do you measure those things? And then we went into organizations to do org surveys and 360 feedback for companies like American Express or Pfizer or ESPN or whoever, and try to figure out culture. So, and through all of that, people kept, I'm having babies. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And while I'm having these babies and thinking about becoming a partner, people are saying to me, my son Jackson is 17 now. And when he was, you know, like three, I made partner and his older sister, Lindsay, was like five. And people are telling me, so you think you can do it all? And I was like, wait, no, I don't think I can do it all, but I can do this. Right. Or they would, you know, sometimes people would say things like, oh, you're, you're poor kids. And I was like, yeah, that's not what, like, they're, they're good. They're in Montessori school. They have a dog. Our nanny is like part of the family, but people's assumptions were that my, my children were somehow losing out. And so I began to collect women across these companies who in the data were high performing. And also in the, we, we would do interviews on executive development processes. Mm -hmm. So leader models, senior leaders, it means sort of director level and above. So the idea of you can be a highly accomplished, highly influential human and not have to be in the C-suite, right? but the idea of you may be. Sweet, um, but we we basically are collecting these women who are doing super cool things and highly admired. And I, as a researcher, all I know how to do is ask you stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to collect them, kind of like we collected ABC News and and Gallup and whatever, and and look at across people's experience because prior to that, everyone had been pointing me to one woman at a time, like. If you could just meet this woman, Beth, she's the CFO and, and you'll feel better. And I was like, okay, I like 20% of what she said. Mm-hmm. And part of that is not a match. So I started to collect these women and then ask them what it's like to be them. And like eight in 10 said their lives were close to ideal. 98% loved their jobs. 98% had a really strong sense of accomplishment and satisfaction with their family life. And it was like this Harry Met Sally moment, even for me. Because I was drawn to them from an admiration standpoint, and I knew they were killing it and seemed really happy. But as I spoke to them and looked at their data, I was like, oh, my God, I will have what she's having. And realized in the coaching work that I was doing, so many young women are told, you know, at 35, like, you can't have it all. And I'm like, that is the stupidest brain shortcut bias. It's almost like shrugging your shoulders in the face of a business problem. It's like, why not just solve the problem in front of you right? rather than solving for 
you know, is the world flat or not for women? But it really does go back to Aristotle. It goes to John Locke, Mary Wollstonecraft, to all these things that are like women would be super equal if they didn't have babies. But that's going to be the derailer forever. And and now there's a growing body of research that says motherhood-related bias and penalty is the single biggest reason why we don't have more women in leadership. So, so that's sort of the progression. This episode is brought to you by the Boundary Academy. 15 years of coaching thousands of women has taught me that it doesn't matter how good our plans, our intentions are, our network, or even our access to external resources. If we don't have the boundaries we need to honor what we care about, we will always struggle with a lack of time or energy or money or downright satisfaction. You see, women who have thriving, healthy careers and relationships know that boundaries aren't just something nice you get to later. There's something you practice gently now so that you have the later that you want. So you can get free access to the recording of the Boundaries Brunch we did right before the Boundary Academy opened. There's a link to it in the show notes wherever you're listening or head on over to carlyfane.com. And in this 45-minute class, you're going to learn the three mindsets that women with healthy boundaries already know and live into, plus lots of rich, candid conversation with thought leaders in the field of boundaries and women who are just getting started. There's nothing for sale in there. Just rich content you're not going to get anywhere else. Because that hunch you're meant to be doing something meaningful and enjoyable with your life and career, it's right. I hope you'll join me and women from around the world that are making having boundaries oh so doable. I'm so curious about so much of this, but as you describe, I'm fascinated first by the level of satisfaction and joy and well-being that these women who are proper leader moms are experiencing. And to hear you reflect that out loud, that they're not secretly struggling at the top, that there are some plenty of women, I'm sure, who are, but that there's also this sense of like of of doing well. What are some of the things that have surprised you to learn about these leader moms? Let me just say one thing before I answer that. So one of the things is not all working mothers would count in my book as leader moms. So like if I was on Wall Street, there would be different women at different points who would say things to me like I had like senior execs, very accomplished, killing it. But they would say things to me like I had my kids for the weekend and by Saturday morning at noon, I wanted to give them back to the nanny. Mm. Right. Like those are not people who were admired as highly engaged parents. Right. So it didn't surprise me that they were killing it at work. But what surprised me were that they were challenging some of these assumptions about what's possible in terms of an integrated life. And in a lot of ways, they the degree to which they do things that are, the term I would use is scaling as a leader. Do you know that term? Yeah. Right? Yeah. You lead yourself, you lead a team, you lead leaders, then you lead the organization. Like as people grow, the metaphor I use is like skiing. Mm. It's like you start off on the bunny slope and you just manage your own life. <laughs> and then you go to the greens and you have a team. It's still challenging. You got to learn a bunch of stuff. And then you get to the blues. And most, that's where most women either stay or drop off. Right. And then to get to these elite levels, a, not everybody wants to be C-suite, but what differentiates the leader moms are in a lot of ways, classic leader behaviors that get you to that level. Like it, it's like becoming a professional athlete or like they just, they know where their value is, right? Like what is my highest value in the context of this team and organization? 
they grow things beyond incremental gains, right? So they're really thinking like, what is the biggest contribution I can make to this business? And how do I do that? And then how do I, and how do I engage the team around me? Right. And what's interesting about leader moms is they use that logic at home as well. <laughs> Give me an example of that. Like, what could that look like? If somebody's listening in and they're, and they're, cause I want people to understand your definition of what a leader mom is also, because like, I don't have children and yet the work that you do is so applicable and helpful to me as well. Yeah. So thank you for saying that. I want to say around the definition, part of the bias around motherhood is that it affects you as much as for me. So if you don't have kids, the motherhood related bias and penalty affects you because people wonder why you don't. Right. Right. Or or they're waiting for you to have them. Right. So there's a data point that women are evaluated on performance and men are evaluated on that's a lot of people have heard. Men are more likely to be evaluated on performance and potential. I believe that part of the reason we don't evaluate women on potential is because women are wildly unpredictable in what we'll do when it comes to having babies. Mm -hmm. Like some of us stay, some of us don't stay, some of us work part-time. And if you're a regular manager trying to run a division, you're not doing the multivariate analysis to figure out how that works. So I think for me at its highest level, the um, leader moms stuff offers utility to anyone who wants to perform and contribute. So everything about our research assumes competence and contribution, but also to do so in such a way that you are a higher functioning human, right? Like it's, it's, it's sort of the antidote to the rat race mindset. Right. And I, I think it's actually, and please forgive me for this because uh, it's taken me a while to be this bold. But when I look at where the dysfunction in the world has been, and I've been around, whether it's Enron or Wall Street crash or different kinds of crazy things I've seen in my career that a lot of that alpha male, I am only career is the flip side of the motherhood bias. Like men get more associated with career. And then you begin to define yourself as a human based on title or cash. And then, you know, the integrity of the world begins to decompose. I think, right. If we're looking at a more sustainable model of leadership and humanity, I think you can't get there until you factor in the things that have been traditionally identified as female, emotional intelligence, connection, teamwork, women outscore men on teamwork behaviors in general, women outscore men on interpersonal acumen in general. So I would like those things to be normalized and expected of men so that sort of the energy of the universe gets balanced out. (laughs) And I think for the functioning of organizations, the data is pretty clear that it's better for everybody. And for the for the world and for our families. So yeah, I'm trying to be bolder with that message. And that's part of what I mean by bend history is we cannot let the inertia pull us back to the expectation that it's not supposed to work. And part of that, I think, is as an example, teaching women guilt is a big part of being a leader mom. Now, I wasn't surprised by that. Like about half of the panel struggles with guilt in some way. Mm-hmm. But learning how to integrate guilt, how to handle guilt can actually help Ooh. And, and there's, there's a fair amount of like about half of the panels say they can see gender equity in sight in their organization, which is for some people a ton, right? Like, wow, it's almost half. They must work for more pro- progressive organizations, which may well be true. But for other people, it's like, wow, it's only half. I'm like, I don't care. The point is that they're dealing with microaggression type stuff mm-hmm. or in different ways, like most of us, but they're learning 
the, the phrase we use is be amazing and take the bumps lightly. I and love, I love, I love when you use that phrase, be amazing and take the bumps lightly. And I'm so glad that you brought forward this thread of, of guilt. Cause we've got to go there for a second. If you're, if you're game, because as you and I were talking about earlier, this is the month of professional nourishment is what we're focusing on here at Messy and Magnificent. And when we were speaking, you mentioned that we can welcome guilt in as either foe or friend, both of those. And I know that, you know, when we do this work, the work that we do in, in my coaching practice with women, it, it doesn't matter how good the tools are or how great the, the data or the research or the mindset shifts are if there's guilt getting in the way. If there's guilt that's preventing us from nourishing ourselves or doing the thing we want to do or hearing our own best wisdom, then like, then that's the saboteur, right? So I'm so curious, how does guilt show up for, for leader moms? What do you see? I, um, so first of all, I want to say to your uh, listeners, how many of you have had guilt in the last 12 days? <laughs> tried like, tried 12 hours. I'll just speak for myself in the last 12 hours. And to just think about for them, the last time that guilt rose for them, right? So so this thing that I'm about to say is basic emotional intelligence, right? So emotional intelligence accounts for like in the literature somewhere between if you're at a senior leader level, my recollection is like 24 to 66% of performance. Wow. So it's it's much too much to ignore. And it's something that we teach and and personally I teach to really smart people in a very I don't know, like I was teaching algebra. But here, so here goes. So, so there are different types of emotions and guilt is a feeling, right? So the feeling shows up in your body in some way. And that's part of what differentiates that for any emotion, here's the, the, where the intel comes in. You have to discriminate. Is it good data or is it bad data? Mm. So, so emotions have the capacity to enrich us, right? So if, if I feel sad, because I've lost something and I need some support. If I can recognize that and call you and say, hey, Carly, can we talk for a minute? I'm really sad about this thing. I need some advice. That is a very wise use of the the emotion of sadness to, to prompt me to reach out. If I get sad about something and then start to spiral down into, oh yeah, this has always happened to me and I don't really, people don't take me seriously and I don't really belong here. And then I go in my room and ruminate and then- <laughs> With a tub of ice uh, cream, right? <laughs> yeah. Or, or a bottle of Chardonnay, <laughs> if we're honest. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that is not a great use of guilt. But what may be happening there is that growing up in consulting as one, you know, there would be one or two female partners around the table And so having had people talk over me Mm. or to have me say something, and if it weren't for this friend of mine, Steve Williams, who in meetings, when somebody else would say the thing that I said and get credit for it, and I would think I'm crazy. And Steve would say, hey, Flavin just said that. That was hers, right? But all of those moments of sort of microaggressions or even for me, my childhood experience, third kid, right? Like if I get talked over, it's like, no one likes me. (laughs) <laughs> but those are old, either unmet needs or wounds from bias mm. that prompt something, right? Yeah. So, so when guilt comes up, guilt can be super useful. One of the main things about being a leader mom, right? You're never going to satisfy anybody is part of what I want to tell you relative <laughs> to the, when my kids were born, I stayed in work. My mom was mad at me. Now that, now that I'm still in work, my mom's like, yay. It's like, okay. Some people get it. Some people don't. It can be very isolating to be who we are. And whether you're a leader mom or a mom leader, you're going to have the same experience. So Mm -hmm. if you choose to take off sometime, 
Some people will shame you for taking off. It's like, whatever. So you, so you need to know how you really feel and what really works for you and your family and your career. And the only way you can do that is getting clear about your own values yes. and how your values trade off. And guilt is, guilt is basically a super useful thing that my, you know, if you conscience or my whatever tells me when I violate a value, I feel guilty. Mm. So when my middle son was young, I got asked to do this thing on his birthday and I went and we were all like, we celebrate for the whole month. So what does it matter that it's May 1st? And FaceTiming from a hotel room and watching him with this look on his face, I felt horrible, mm. horrible, massive guilt. I'm like, I can't do this. But the, and what would have been bad about that is if I had said, so I quit. Right. Right. Because emotion was so intense. Um, but I listened to it and said to my then boss, this guy, Paul Gasky, who I adore, I said, Paul, I am never traveling. I don't care if it's the Pope. I am never traveling on my kids' birthdays again, mm. just so you know. And he said, fine, I don't travel on my kids' birthdays. That's so important. What you just mentioned is how it, how common it's self-imposed. Also, the circumstances that aren't working might be self-imposed. Right. So, so there's that side of it. There, there's another side of it where it's like you you assume you're supposed to do things or do everything like I would I will stare at laundry and just feel terrible about myself. And it takes like 12 minutes to do. So if I would just stop feeling bad and do it or get one of my kids to do it or just throw it in their room unfolded or whatever, but I'd let it drain me. Or at the holidays, I would kill myself at year end doing client closeouts, finances, planning for next year, and then try to make sweet potatoes or something from my, you know, somebody's recipe. And one of the leader moms in our panel told me, oh, I used to feel guilty about that. Now I take my family recipes and my dishes to the caterer. And she makes the food for me in my dishes. So no one in my family knows (laughs) like that. That to me is like a bias hack, right? Right. It's like a life hack because she doesn't actually care if she cooks it. She cares if the family's together and she cares what goes in the the gifts for her family, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't care about sweet potatoes or Kelly Fredrickson, who you met in New York. Yeah. Kelly's thing about having birthday parties for her kids. Her Kelly's phrase was fuck goodie bags. (sighs) Because she felt guilty about like running around. And then she realized, wait, it's not guilt. It's resentment. And resentment is like when something is unfair, but I'm saying yes to this thing I don't actually want to do. And so she was able to to sort of pull useful data from that. And she basically said to her kids, do you care if I do goodie bags? And my husband said, no. And she's like, yay. Like she said, I was feeling like guilty for not doing them well enough and then resentful. And as so in this guilt land in general for leader mom, emotional intelligence, like black diamond emotional intelligence is really important because how you feel matters so deeply to your success and your boundaries and your capacity to connect and not overgive or overfunction right. or deplete yourself. Um, and it and because it also lives in this land of of a lifetime of microaggressions or just gendered roles that expect you to be communal, you know, not too much, not too little, but just, just right. right <laughs> which I have never hit, or like in the moments that I hit it, uh, the dopamine is enough to keep me going. But to to learn to discriminate, wait, is this really mine? Is this thing really mine? Or where does this come from? How do I want to relate to this guilt? Ah. Uh. That's huge, Catherine. So tell me if I'm getting this right. As you describe guilt, 
in this framework, in this model, and being so data driven too, is, is this is more than anecdotal. This is this is what you do, right? You collect this research. This awareness of so when an uh, an emotion or feeling like guilt rises to the surface, this is our emotional intelligence calling for something, right? Like this is the invitation to up-level our emotional intelligence. And so it sounds like as you talk about really discernment, the first step is, can I dare to pause and ask what guilt is trying to tell me? And when, as you describe your example, I think a recent guilty moment I had was I, I went on a date. I was having a great time. It was going really well. Guy, you know, asked me, Hey, do you want to stay for dinner? I can cook dinner. And my, and I had plans to see my nephews and I see my nephews all the time. <laughs> I see them. I love my nephews dearly. I see them all the time. There's no shortage of, of visits with my nephews. And but I don't go on dates very often. Like that is very rare. And I'm sitting there and I'm and I'm debating, you know, what do I do? And the guilt was, well, if I don't show up for the nephews, you know, is that gonna feel terrible? I also value having my own personal life and love and and all those things. And in the moment I just felt pulled in two opposite directions. And so I quickly defaulted to just feeling stretched too thin and frustrated. But had I sat with it, had I had this model in that moment, I would have thought, well, the value here is that I get to see my nephews often. Am I seeing them often? Yes. Then that means it would be okay to reschedule plans this one time. Like, cause I never reschedule plans with them, right? Like that would mean it would be okay. And I could have let myself off the hook. So I am so grateful for this, this invitation, right? So like guilt is the invitation towards growing our emotional intelligence, which from your data is clearly one of the most important leadership strengths that there is. Yeah. And I love this story because part of me wants to ask you can and your your listeners, can you imagine a scenario in which you feel guilt for neglecting yourself? Huh. That's kind of my fantasy for, for us. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I really am working on is part of the discrimination is to make people aware of where the bias turns up. So motherhood related bias means something like 86% of us have a stronger association of women with family than career. So for you with your nephew, right? Like that, that, that maternal female connected bias, another set of researchers call it the male hubris, female humility divide. Mm, Ooh, the male hubris, female humility divide. Tell me about that. So that, so that one is basically that men, social psychologists basically say consistently men will claim their contributions and women systematically underestimate ours. Right. So if you, if you know that, and we are often rewarded for being communal. Um, and when we're two, the, the third type of bias is called agenic female bias. So men have a larger range of leader behaviors available to them. So when women are too agenic, meaning too much agency, talking to, you know, pushing too hard, we tend to get bit in the backside for it. Right. And so the, just as a side note, if you can live in the land of competent and communal, like when you're pushing, you be, it's, it's almost like me giving you a, a, an umbrella to send out into land where it's raining bias. Um, you can still say the things that you want to say and push for the things that you want. But if you if you use the we, like it's good for the world, it's good for humanity, even if you're advocating for yourself, you can play to this bias with some, like this kind of savvy isn't, isn't always an inherently virtuous. It can really help in negotiation. But these things that, that we're dealing with tend to push us toward giving, over giving to others and over considering others. Whereas men are better at 
in general, again, like the, there are women who are good at this stuff too. But if you look at differences in the curves at what intrapersonal management, like this is how I feel, this is what I think, this is what I need. And I would love for women to get, you know, 10% better at owning what we do accomplish and what we do need to accomplish those things. So like we need to eat, sleep and pee, right? <laughs> right. We need to. And some of the conversations that I have with, like I'm working with a team of, of surgeons, many of whom are female, are like, people need all this stuff from us. And I'm like, in order for you to give to them, you need to get like a piece of lasagna yeah, <laughs> or, you know, have a chance to catch your breath, go to and run to the bathroom, right? Like, don't go through a surgeon. If you're my surgeon, I want you to have pee before you start. <laughs> Um, and that's basically because it's linked to performance. So I want you to protect the asset that is you. So I, I, Marissa, our colleague who we know both so well, she, she uses this self-care model. And I really, as a leadership person, think of it as Mm self-valuing. I need you to consider yourself an asset. You are a human capital asset at work. Yes. You are a family asset at home. And if you can just attend to your basic care and keeping, then you will function at a higher level to serve all of the people that you love or all the people who are respons- you're responsible for at work. And if you let yourself be depleted, that's where your emotional intelligence gets lower because if you're hangry and you get asked a question and old emotional wound comes up, you're more likely to say something stupid and have a regrettable incident like I'm more likely to say to my kids, oh my God, is no one ever going to pick up this king towel? Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, instead of saying, hi, I love that you're reading that book. Tell me about your day, right? Yeah. So, so it, one of the ways that we can, just as humans, every single one of us needs to learn to protect the asset that is us physically, emotionally, mentally, so that we can perform over time for the for our organizations and the people we care about. You just drew the most clear connection, Catherine, between self-value and increase in our emotional intelligence, which is one of the core essential needs in order to be in any leadership capacity, whether that's leading a team or leading a team of leaders or just having agency in your own day. For those who are listening in who aren't leading an official team, but they want to lead themselves in their day. And many of the people who are not leading an official team are running our schools, right? <laughs> or running our neighborhoods. So to me, it's like the leader mom thing is leader mom, mom leader. To me, it moves back and forth. Yeah, It's, also, you know, it, it's as many women's careers are nonlinear. But the, the idea is I want to be able to bring some of the assumptions about motherhood are things like someone's going to outwork you. I was like, yeah, I've met that guy. His ability to show up 75 hours a week may there, there are some things about looking busy gives you advantage, right? I get that showing up gives you advantage because basically you're wired into people's brains. But if you add value at high levels and turn up, people will keep you. Right. If you are brave enough as a female to just own whatever it is that you actually produce and put in some effort into that, into capturing that and understanding where it is and how you can make it higher in the context of your teams, play to your strengths, do what's meaningful to you, make sure it is additive to the organization. When you know what that is, the stuff that people may ask you to do, like, hey, could you organize this meeting? Or, hey, could you take notes? You might be like, no, because 
that kind of domestic work is more likely to be given to women. But if you're clearer on where your value is, which is a core leader mom thing, if you know where it is, then you're able to focus on how am I going to add the most value I can with the time and energy that I have to give to this and still have something left over so that the whole, like for me, the whole point of working was to take care of my kids right, and make the world better, right, for them. Um, and so if I came home com- entirely depleted and I felt like I paid the babysitter to live my life, I was like, wait, this is wrong. And so I, I chose to work for this guy, Paul Gasky, who was in a lot of ways represented the best of our research. He cared about the results I generated, didn't so much care how I got them or when I got them, if I was working at 4 a.m. He was like, whatever. <laughs> right, right. We have, global, we have global clients. I'm sure some people in Japan are super happy to be hearing from them, right? Or different kinds of things. He was able to say, just here's what would be valuable to me. Um, and I don't expect you to do it the way that I do, but but you're really good at this and I'm going to help you grow incrementally over time. So that that investment he made it possible for me to invest a little bit at a time and learn and stay in the game and not feel like I needed to commit to be a partner or that I needed to commit to want to be queen of the world in order for him to invest in me. So he played a really good short game for a long period. And then it was sort of like the tortoise and the hare. There it is. Cause you were right. You had figured out how to sustain this level because you weren't trying to sprint. And, and as you describe this, Catherine, I hear you saying, gosh, this, this richness around the concept of value, because there's knowing what we value and knowing what value we bring, right? That it, it just keeps coming back to value. And do I value being the CEO of this organization or do I value something different than that right now? And can I own that? There's this sense of ownership as you describe what's working of, can I just own and maybe even articulate outward, hey, I don't need to work 75 hours a week in order to, to do X, Y, and Z that I'm very good at and that this company needs or this organization needs or the swim team needs, right? Whatever it is that we're, that we're leading. Yeah. And it is, and a lot of times because of the bias we, and this question of, I can't do it all, right? So like, that's the, literally, if your brain ever goes to, oh, I can't do it all, just know that your brain is tired. You need to go get a lemonade and feed it some glucose because it is basically decided I'm not going to do complicated math. I'm going to take a shortcut right. to a simpler, well-paved path to an answer, which is basically no every single time we <laughs> ask. <that question. laughs> and instead, you know, just sort of be like, okay, what is the problem I'm trying to solve in front of me? And not go to the epic big things, but just be like, okay, what do I, because oftentimes it's like, do, do I need a babysitter right? or do I, do I want to do this thing or whatever? It, and, and our brains can sort of get fall into thinking traps around making them bigger and uglier than they actually are. And that is, I don't know, it's just it, if, and if we are able to take the moments of contribution, I, t- I told the story recently, we were on a small group coaching call of a team of executives four men, one woman, and she has young kids. And she said, I'm exhausted. I just am not able to get everything done. And so in the spot, I asked each person to take 20 seconds and tell me what they had accomplished. So write down what they had accomplished so far that day. And a couple of the men who were really solid leaders were saying, I got here. I checked in with my team. I've responded to emails. And I started this thing. And her list was, I got up, I got my kids off to school. I made them breakfast, prepped dinner, got here, had talked to the board, talked to my colleague, drafted the strategic plan, (laughs) 
stepped to the widow and it was like seven things more than anybody else in the room, but she was comparing herself to some idealized thing. Right. So when you get into value, you actually have to ask people, what am I doing that is valuable to you? Right. Tell me what's valuable about what came, you know, like this deliverable I just gave you that you said you liked so much. You have to be brave enough to say, tell me what's valuable about that. And if I were going to increase the value 10%, is there anything you would ask of me, right? But you don't want to, people, when they ask for feedback, often invite critique. Right. Like, give me some feedback, which means tell me what's wrong with me. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, right. Validate for me all the negative thoughts I have about myself, as opposed to what here is working. And this, going back to the example you gave from Kelly earlier, Like even with the goodie bag, do you value goodie bags? I mean, that wasn't the way she phrased it, but it was, do you care about these, right? And the kids could just say, not so much. No, actually. We really care about the super big, you know, hoagie that she gets. Right. But, um, and they care about having an inclusive party. So they're, they're, but this notion of value, it gets us out of our own head and into the context of the relationship. And it's also easier for many of us to claim our value in the eyes of what other people through the words of other people. Mm. Like every time I have to write a bio, I, I vomit a little in my mouth. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm just so bad at describing myself. Um, and I hate, and I've had a, I had a client who said she specializes in teaching smart people things that they think are stupid at first. Oh. Right. And he meant emotional intelligence to super smart. Right. 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 Or inclusion behaviors to super smart people. I was like, oh my God, that's so nice, (laughs) right? Like that's a much better definition of value than I ever would have come to. Mm. And so we really do need each other to understand how we show up at our best. This is part of what I love about the work you're doing with Leader Mom too, is the way you connect women to one another and you give this forum to practice and reflect back um, each other's value and, and to learn together. So I'm so curious, would you be willing to play our two way Q and A? Oh yeah. All right. I, yeah. I can't wait to hear your answers to these questions. All right. <laughs> Question number one, Catherine, here we go. Ready? And we've already crossed the cursing barrier. So now you can really say whatever you want to say. If you came with a warning label, what might it read? Oh, so Paul Gasky gave me this warning label. Um, and the phrase was velvet hammer. <sighs> So, so we will deliver very difficult messages. I will deliver very difficult mes- messages and I will do it with a lot of love, but it, it, sometimes I will hit you with two by four in coaching or in something. I think that's part of it. The other warning label is actually on my laptop and it said, hold on, let me overthink this. <laughs> <laughs> I love both of those so much. They're so, they're so true and they're so good. And I appreciate the level at which you care and love. That allows you to say the hard things that need to be said. Like, I can trust somebody who I know is going to tell me the thing that needs to be said. I'd appreciate that you do it with a little bit of velvet. That's, that's just, that's the bonus, right? That's the bonus. So for a woman listening, based on our conversation, what's one question you have for them? My question would go something like this. How would your life be different if you held on to compliments statements of value, reassurance, the same way you hold on to criticism or a sense of not being enough. 
Isn't that the million dollar question? How might your life be different if you held on to the good feedback you're receiving as well as we do to the, to the criticism? One of the leader moms said, why is it that I take credit for my kids' C's and not for my kids' A's? What might be different? So if you're hearing this, I really do encourage you to comment on iTunes or on social media. We'll make sure that all of Catherine and Leader Mom's information for LinkedIn and Instagram is here. And keep this conversation going because there's something rich about flipping that switch to focus on what is the value that I'm bringing bringing forward? Yeah. And and this is the, so whether you're talking about personal or if we were in a yoga studio or we were in an elite athletic place, the be amazing and take the bumps lately really is the mantra of leader mom. And you can't be amazing if you do not give serious attention to your strengths and value and capacity and the ways in which you are adding differentiated value in your family, in your community, in your organization. If you just own that a little bit more this week and right? just play with that because the world really needs us to do that so that we don't understate the value or become invisible in the contributions that we have. And then this notion of take the bumps lightly, whether it's guilt or anything to, inter- to, to know it's normal and that when you want to seize, right, soften, instead that's how that's and again I'm not a great skier but this metaphor came from this week of skiing (laughs) but the idea if I'm going to be a decent skier when I hit a mogul I can't seize up and worry about falling I have to soften and find my footing again so if it's how you relate to guilt or how you relate to dropped balls or things that yet you miss because no human can do everything if we're soft with that it protects your energy for the highest use of it. And I really do believe the world needs us now more than ever. So could we stop burning our own energy? Amen. There it is. There it is. All right. So here's my last question, Catherine, you've given us so much already, but even if other people disagree, what is one thing that you know to be true? I know that most of the mistakes in my life have come from underestimating or under attending to that little voice inside me. Hmm. Trying to satisfy other people, trying to, I don't know, get the gold star, trying to avoid a difficult issue or conversation. And so that, that work that we do to really find our own North star and be brave about what we care about and where, what we actually value and how we want to show up and, and honoring that. almost every single significant screw up in my life has been a violation of that. Wow. That's something that I'm going to chew on for a little while longer. There's because there's something powerful about that idea of the ways. And we talk about that here. Sometimes the ways we, we circumvent our knowing, right? We know something and then we circumvent it, or we know something about our value. We do know maybe we're good at something and then we downplay it in the conversation or we're quick to deflect the compliment. And so you, have brought forth such a brave and inspiring invitation to consider what it is we're good at for the sake of making more of that good in the world for ourselves and for everybody else, right? We can't, we can't elevate other women without including ourselves in that conversation of elevation. Yeah. And the the great thing, the leader mom panel in some ways, when you are brave enough to go after these things, right? And I, and I just want the listeners also just as a footnote to know that our most senior women do not subcontract parenting, wow. right? They're still highly engaged as parents. So it's worth it. Their influence is higher. 
and these kinds of things. But but the idea of linking leadership and joy, right now we have a massive crisis in leadership. If your listeners are thinking, I'm not sure this is really like I can do this or I'm not sure it's me, I would like you to look around and think you're at least as smart as that guy. Yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> leadership is learned and it's learned in these little micro moments, reflections, trial and error. And it, it's you know, like, like learning a sport, it's like you pick up the club and you give it a go. And sometimes the ball goes where you want and sometimes it doesn't. But there's a bias, another bias around leadership being male. Mm-hmm. When people ask me, like, do I look like a leader or trying on the CEO title? I was like, I should, I should be six feet tall. If I'm going to have that title, I'm five, six. Right? But there's a voice in my head that says you don't really belong here. But, but I do, and you do, and your listeners do. And uh, we need to teach people that, but we have to teach it to ourselves first because so much of the bias is internalized. So Catherine, if someone's listening and they're thinking, yes, more of this, yeah. How can they get in touch with you? We'll put links in the here where you're, where you're listening in. I would encourage anybody to link into us. There's a Leader Mom new page on LinkedIn. There, They can also link into me personally on LinkedIn. We have at Leader Mom Official and the website is leadermom.com. And there's a membership that we're going B2B, I think soon. But for about the price of shoes, you can come in and be part of this community and we'll feed you like micro boosts of things that you can learn and practice that will help you at work and at home. So it's sort of leadership development, leader mom style. And I know you all are not messing around and nobody has any time. So we're going to get to the point really quickly and also have sort of the expertise around it to say, this is the behavior to practice. Yes. And this is science behind it. My goodness. That conversation with Catherine is something that I will replay again and again and again. And did you hear her question? I really want to know your answer. How might your life be different if you held on to compliments and statements of value or reassurance the same way you hold on to criticism or your sense of not being enough? Take that on over to iTunes and put it in a review so that I can give you a shout out and keep this conversation going between episodes. Plus, in case you're new to the show, you might not know that every time you leave a review, it helps more women find this podcast. It raises us up in the algorithm. And then that really simple action that you take could radically change the information and support a woman on the other side of the world might be experiencing. And I really do encourage you to check out the work that Catherine is doing over at leadermom.com. You can head straight there or I will put a link to it right here in our show notes wherever you're listening in. They have formed such an exceptional community of women where they're sharing the special content from tracking common myths with findings from their research and connecting you to teams of experts and researchers and panelists for advice and guidance. There is a camaraderie of real women wherever Catherine goes who face challenges and pitfalls and continue to do well together. So absolutely make sure that you check out more about Leader Moms. And remember, you thrive through nourishment, not punishment. Keep taking care of what you value, perhaps engaging with your guilt as a tool to keep your values top of mind. And I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Messy and Magnificent podcast and being part of this dynamic, life-giving community of women. 
I consider each episode part of a lifelong conversation of you and me hanging out, sipping tea together, making sure that all women become richer, more nourished, and able to keep on rising. So I'll see you on the next episode next week. But in the meantime, don't forget to head over to carlyfane.com forward slash podcast to get the full show notes. And I've also got some extra special free resources for driven women over there that you won't find anywhere else.